of all the interviews I've watched, that's your spot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I have one other spot, but this is a preferred spot. Where, where is uh, it? In a bathroom? <laughs> Does it look like that? That's unfortunate <laughs> that it looks like that. Uh, I'm picturing a craftsman style house. That's the window. Your neighbor lives too close to you, so every time you sit on the toilet and that window, that, that screen's open, you can look over into their house. <laughs> but that's just my imagination <laughs> running wild. Yeah, it actually would be pretty funny if I if I did it in the bathroom. I'm tempted to try it one of these days. But um, let me ask you one important question: Is it possible for me to not see myself? When I talk, that is a great question. You could put a piece of duct tape on your screen. I don't know what the long term effects would be <laughs> on your computer. Uh, I don't know how to do that. That's uh, a great question. But you, I see there's this plus button. Can I click this plus? Go button? for it. Oh, yeah. That just made me. So now you've, you've started with the, uh, you've already opened up a, a bag of worms. Um, why, um, why you don't want to look at yourself? Well, no, my daughter pointed out that whenever I see myself, I make my mirror face. (laughs) (laughs) I always tease my, I tease my wife about her mirror face too. She does this thing with her lips. Yeah, that, that's what I do too. Oh, crazy. I can't, I, I can't not do it. I've tried. I'm like, what's up, baby? You need a kiss? Who are you kissing? Yeah. Sam, do you like this? What do you mean? This this podcast and interviews, and do you like doing this? Do you like? Uh, I guess you could say promoting your book. I like podcasts. I don't like, you know, I I tweet about myself all the time now, and I feel like a total narcissistic prick. So I don't like that. But uh, I do. I like talking to people. It's it's a hard transition. About a year and a half ago, I started talking to my. Um, Instagram. I don't. Do you do Instagram? I couldn't find you on Instagram. Uh, yeah, I just joined. Well, technically joined a while ago, but I just posted for the first time a few days ago. Um, and I started talking, and, it, and it's really one because I don't like the way I look. I don't find myself attractive, so I, I always just go to this place. N- not in a bad way. Like I'm okay with that. But then mm. I'm always like, well, if I don't like the way I look, why would anyone else want to look at me? But then I just had to get over that hump. I'm just like, okay, I just have like. I just have to share this, and I think it adds value to people's lives, and and it worked out okay. No one yeah. ever DM me, "Hey, you're ugly as shit." Um, just talk, point your camera at the flowers, yeah. and just talk. <laughs> yeah. See, my problem is I only like the way I look if I'm making my mirror face. Otherwise, I find myself like horrendous. So if I see you do that, I'm going to lean into my camera and give you a kiss. So watch out. <laughs> All right. Um, am I too dark? Speaking of. Appearances. No, I would actually say you need more sun. You look like you haven't been in the sun in a while. <laughs> uh, no, I, I do have uh, I have another light I can put on here if, if you think I need it. No, but I was. Um, it's funny you say that because I was actually thinking as I was watching your other interviews, I was like, oh, this guy needs a um, a beauty light. Like I have this light I got on Amazon for like ninety nine dollars, and it's a circle light, and it's supposed to make me attractive. Yeah, yeah, I do. I have a like a small fifteen dollar version that I can turn on if you think it would help. You look fantastic. You look fantastic. Cool, cool. Um, a, a friend of mine named um, Emily Kaplan I, I, reached out to me and said, "Hey, you should check out this book, Ravenous, and if you like it, I can get you an interview with the author." And Emily's really smart, and I know the people she rolls with are smart, 
And um, do you know her? Does that name ring a bell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she's uh, been helping me sort of get word out about the book. So um, oh, okay, uh, I I haven't met her in person, but uh, I'm a big fan. And uh, her husband's like smart times too. So when she said that, I yeah. was like, okay. I, I, but I'm I was scared to death because I like it, like what is she gonna do? Bring Thomas Seafried on here, and I'm gonna and he's gonna say a bunch of shit, and I'm gonna be like, huh? So, yeah. but um, I am 16 chapters into Ravenous. I listened to it on audiobook. That is the book that you wrote. Um, it is. I'm. It's riveting. Like it, it's the it's the, yeah. it's the kind of book where every time I'm I'm listening to an audiobook and I'm, I drive a rant, a van for a living with three little boys in the back from event to event to event, and um, I, they're my boys. And anytime someone talks, I pause it. And then I, re I hit the button on the um, Apple audiobook to rewind it 15 seconds. And I just, I don't know how you are with compliments, but it is the, it is one of the greatest books that I've ever read. I am hugely into oh. biographies. I don't know if you would call it a biography. Um, is it a biography? Uh, I, uh, well, first I just want to say thank you. I mean, that's uh, tremendously flattering. I, I really appreciate that. I'm, you know, I don't know if I'm good with compliments, but I appreciate them. Uh, I don't, I actually don't call it a biography. Uh, other people do, uh, but that's never how I envisioned it, you know, because my goal wasn't to capture every aspect of Warburg's life so much as to use his life as a frame to tell a story about cancer. But, you know, ideally, you know, I hope that it, you know, it functions like a biography, but it's not comprehensive in the way a biography might be. And and how did you stumble upon Otto Warburg? What, what, how did you first hear his name? Um, yeah, I'll answer. By the way, we ha we haven't officially started, have Always. we? Always, we started. We are we're uh, did we, we are six minutes in. Uh, okay, wait. So everything I've been saying has actually been part of the podcast. Yes, your ba our bathroom talk, your mirror face. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Um, all right. Now I, I now that I know that we're on, I have to. People uh, like you because you're vulnerable yeah. already. People love you already. You're vulnerable. Uh, already. Okay. All right. Um, I thought this was like a the green room chat, but anyways, um, Warburg. Um, By the way, everyone always thinks that. That's how all my podcasts start. Ten minutes in, someone's like, "So we're yeah. going to do this?" I'm like, "No. What are you talking about? We're doing it." Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's actually a really good <laughs> trick. <laughs> um. Okay. Um, so your your question was about how how did I find out about Warburg? Yeah, like what the Otto Warburg. The book Ravenous is a is it's a little too simplistic to say this, but it's about a Nobel Prize winner, Otto Warburg, um, who lived in Germany during World War One and World War Two. He was born there, son of a great physicist, and or just a remarkable life and an insane contribution, insane contribution to the world. And I'm just wondering, I, I remember how I first heard about him, and I'm super curious how you first heard about him. Yeah, I'm actually curious about how you heard about him as well. But uh, I, uh, you know, I'd been interested in, in metabolism, really. Um, you know, I'd read stuff by Gary Taubes and, and others and, um, you know, became interested in diet and carb, sugar, metabolism, insulin, the whole story that you that I'm sure you know well, and a lot of your listeners probably do. Um, but, you know, I, I had never really thought about cancer as, as being a part of that sort of cluster of metabolic diseases. So it just sort of piqued my curiosity. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, I saw in one article mention of, of Warburg, you know, it's just one sentence. And I, I Googled him and started to read about his story and, um, you know, about his experience in Nazi Germany. And, um, you know, my first book was actually about a, a wandering shepherd who uh, goes through the Austrian countryside singing Yiddish folk songs. And it's all about sort of Austria's story after the war. So so suddenly went, once I saw, you know, Warburg's story and this Holocaust story, um, you know, I, it, I realized that, you know, this larger story had everything that I was interested in at the time, you know, the history, the the Holocaust studies, and then all the metabolism and, and cancer research uh, that I was interested in. So it just struck me as an opportunity to, to put all my interests together when I, when I read about Warburg. And, you know, I'm still, even after writing about him for five years, I'm still sort of fascinated by him as a character and still sometimes feel like I, I haven't entirely figured him out. Uh, and I think that's what you want as a, as a biographer of sorts is, you know, as a character who fascinates you that, that feels like a mystery. Are you Jewish? Yes. In, in one of your interviews, someone said some. I can't remember what they said, but they said, um, the conversation went somewhere about how you didn't want to, you were struggling with the fact because you didn't want to say anything positive about Hitler just because of the, he's not a good guy. Does this ring a bell? But I want to tell yeah. you in the book, I saw no bias. And, and, and I don't think there ever needs to be a bias about characters. And when I read it, I thought everything was just matter of fact. You were never like, and then the despicable tyrant Hitler entered the room. I mean, it was never like that. It was, it was, it was so refreshing just to read it as just journalism. Like, I didn't get a hint of that, by yeah. the way. I thought whatever, whatever you did yeah. or whatever you had to push down or hide or bury, you did... <laughs> You did an amazing job yeah. at that. Yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think you know. I think what you're referring to, if I remember correctly, I said that um, you know because you know I'm just so fundamentally, as, as I hope everybody is, just you know repulsed by every aspect of Nazism. To say that Nazi Germany made progress in, in the context of, of cancer science is you know just makes me uncomfortable to say anything of that nature. But you know, it it, it is true that there were important um, you know, discoveries about cancer during the Nazi period. And, and it's not entirely surprising either because they inherited, you know, one of the best scientific establishments in history. You know, German science was at the top of the world. And even though, you know, they immediately chased out a significant percentage of their greatest scientists, you know, those who were left were still at the top of the cancer world and they were obsessed with cancer. So, it, you know, it's not surprising that they made some progress. Yeah, particularly in, in the context of prevention and screening. Uh, 15, 16 years ago, I started working for a company called CrossFit, which was founded by a gentleman named Greg Glassman. I don't know if, you, I don't sure. know if you've ever met Greg, but he has a ginormous brain. I, I often refer to him as part Einstein, part Tupac, and part uh, Ernest Hemingway. Um, he, he is a a tour de force of a brain and he would he would always talk about Otto Warburg. I would hear that name come out of his mouth over the 15 years once a month. Really? Wow, I didn't know. And that. yeah, I've never met him. And the and, no. and the line in your book that really stuck with me and I shouldn't say there were a lot of lines was when you referenced the fact that Warburg discovered that cancer cells consume 10 times the amount of glucose as regular healthy cells. And that was really 
my takeaway of everything Greg would say, Greg Glassman would say also about Otto Warburg. That that um, that should have set the whole world on fire, in my opinion, when he said that. Like, yeah, yeah. No, it's, I'm just like, it really is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Is. I mean, he he first discovered this in 1923. So you know, initially, you know. First, you know, there's always that period after a big discovery where, you know, people have to confirm that it's true. And, you know, it it took some years, but eventually, you know, it really did. I wouldn't say set the world on fire, but it was understood to be kind of a a big, important discovery. And there were a lot of people interested in cancer metabolism. So, you know, to me, kind of the most amazing part is even though it was acknowledged, after the war, it was, you know, completely forgotten about, you know, to the point that, you know, it's not in, even in, you know, cancer textbooks and, and, you know, famous books about cancer and, and, uh, you know, the hallmarks of cancer is this famous paper, which sort of captures, comes out in 2000. Metabolism, they later did a revised edition, like 10 years later and, and acknowledged Warburg, but, um, you know, just completely disappears. But at the same time, this new diagnostic technique emerges, the PET scan, where what it does is just, you know, it finds cancer in the body by just looking at where, where in your body you're taking up extra glucose. So it's just, you know, just this incredibly fundamental thing about cancer. And, you know, it just absolutely disappeared for decades. And, um, you know, there were a few, you know, scientists here, scientists there that remained interested, but almost no one. And then it really didn't, you know, start to come back until the late 90s. For everyone who's listening to this, um, I, I'd say a lot, most of the people who listen to my podcast are, are obsessed with fitness or movement. Mm-hmm. They're either involved in it or they like watching it. Um, and they, they take their, their health as a premium. This book is kind of like it, – it, it reminds me of the movie – sorry to compare it to this. Uh, there was a movie called Little Buddha with Keanu Reeves many, many, many years ago. I don't know if you saw it, but they weave two stories at the same time. They weave the story of like looking for the modern-day Buddha, the reincarnation of the Buddha, but then at the same time as the movie's going, they're telling the history of Buddha. And so there's at least two, maybe ten stories in your book being told simultaneously – and it reads the whole time, although you're learning all of this stuff that's, like, very powerful. I, th- I think if you're a parent and you haven't read this book, that's a huge mistake. I think there's a tons of things you need to know in there um, that will make you able to raise your kid better than how you were raised. Um, but And that's my bias because I raise kids, like, 24-7. That's, like, my passion, my three little boys. Um but um, but there's also sort of this super intense pressure. It's not super intense, but there's tension in the book because the whole time you're just wondering, is Otto Warburg going to get killed? When is Hitler going to come for, for him? And you do a good job of balancing the two, telling the story of the of the setting that he's living in, basically avoiding getting um, you know snuffed out by these Nazis, but then also at the same time being singularly focused on pushing forward with his research. And a lot of people get focused on his arrogance and things like that. Mm. None of that stuff really bothered me or was like a focus of mine because I just think great people like 
if you're not a great person, you just don't understand great people. Like they're not normal. They like, like Elon, right? Elon Musk. Like, I, yeah. Like, I, I can't imagine Jeff Bezos is normal. Like you don't, the, guy, <laughs> the first guy who climbed yeah. Mount Everest isn't normal. Yeah. Yeah. I would even go further than that to say that, or, you know, I guess, yeah, this is what you mean maybe, but you have, you know, you don't necessarily have to have that personality to do incredible things, but it certainly helps, you know, Warburg's tremendous arrogance allowed him to just, you know, take on experiments that nobody else was doing or thought they could do. You know, if he didn't have the right tool, he didn't just move on to the next thing. He sat down and, and invented the tool that he needed to, to measure certain metabolic processes. So he just assumed greatness, but, um, you know, he also grew up in a house that was filled with Nobel Prize winners. So that was, you know, just his assumption that he was going to be part of that, that community. And, um, you know, he, he was intent on making a great discovery. He believed that he would, and, and he did. Uh, but I, I do think that, um, you know, his narcissism, particularly after the war, you know, undermined him a bit. And that's, you know, part of the reason for his downfall is just that, you know, he started making more and more extreme statements. I think, you know, part of it was sort of post-traumatic stress after the war and he was getting older and, um, you know, but uh, if he had just kept it in check a little more after the war, I feel like uh, it would have, you know, helped helped his case. Sam is not understating that he was um, in a home surrounded by geniuses. If he were, Im- imagine if Sting was your father, the musician, and every day, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were there. Or the Rolling Stones came over. I mean, his house literally was like that. The the um, one of the first times I I heard about Warburg is um, Greg gave me a letter. He said, "Hey, read this." And I read this letter, and I didn't know who was writing the letter. And you talk about this in your book. And the letter is coming from a man writing to another man, and he's like basically. I knew that the letter was to Otto Warburg, and the letter said, hey, buddy, you need to get off the front lines of World War I. You have a lot to contribute to this world. And as I get to the bottom of the letter, it says, sincerely, Albert Einstein. And I'm like, holy shit. (laughs) Can you imagine being a soldier out on the field of war, and all you want to do is fight and defend your country, and and Albert Einstein tells you you're too smart to be fighting on the front lines? Yeah, yeah, it's really incredible. You know, Einstein was was very close with with Warburg's father, who was an incredible physicist, and uh, you know helped provide experimental proof for some of Einstein's theories. So he he said that you know Einstein uh, Warburg's father was his favorite uh, physicist. He really loved him. So he he Einstein wrote that letter to Warburg. You know, I think as a favor to Warburg's parents. And what I love about it is that. He knew enough about Warburg to, to flatter him that, you know, if he was going to get him to get out of the war, he had to tell him how great he was and how important he was. So uh, it was the perfect letter to to get Warburg to come home. And then, you know, sure enough, Warburg listens or seems to listen. You know, we don't have his response, but he does, in fact, return from World War One. Um, you know, it's in 1918, shortly before the end of the war. But it's possible that Einstein's letter saved his life. And then, you know, uh, five years later, he makes this incredible discovery about how cancer cells use glucose. So I like to think that, you know, Einstein has a role in this story, too, that if not for Einstein, maybe we don't get Warburg's discovery. And, um, you know, I'm sure somebody would have made the discovery in a matter of time. But, you know, nevertheless, you know, I think Einstein is a hero in this story as well. Would you you say that um, Warburg was the godfather of photosynthesis also? 
Um, I wouldn't use the word godfather, uh, partially because I never used the word okay, godfather. Okay. Um, but um, he he deserves to be better known for that as well. I would say that um, he uh, made you know revolutionary discoveries in terms of understanding photosynthesis in terms of modern science, you know, sort of taking the new understanding of energy that, that came from Einstein and his own father and using that to, to understand photosynthesis as opposed to, you know, kind of the older methods that have been used to study. He, he sort of modernized the study of photosynthesis. Have you read David Epstein's book, Range? No. Have you heard of that book? No. So I, I read that book right before I read your book. I don't want to misrepresent it, but it's kind of like a Malcolm Gladwell type book, like a pop psychology book. It's a fun book. It's a great book. And basically mm-hmm. the premise of the book is, is, should you be a specialist or should you have a wide variety of skills? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did hear about that. It's a fascinating book. And it, it goes, the opening paragraph or the introduction basically compares Tiger Woods, who had a golf club put in his hand at 10 months, versus Roger Federer the tennis player who played all the sports and then finally in his 20s specialized in tennis or something like that. I might be mischaracterizing it, but I think I have the spirit of it right. Mm -hmm. And then it goes into musicians, talks about jazz musicians who are formally trained versus those who aren't, and and then scientists, and it basically says all this stuff. So when I started reading your book, I had that bias, right? That was like fresh in Mm -hmm. my brain. And in your book, there's a a woman – I think her husband died of cancer and she was wealthy and she wanted to she offered to basically fund war, the the Warburg research empire but she said it had to be specific in cancer research. And mm-hmm. I believe his response was, "Ma'am, I can't do that because the person who finds the cure for cancer will not be a cancer specialist." And then yeah. and then just now you said something interesting to me about how he was innovative if he needed the tool to measure something and that tool didn't exist, he would also just start focusing on creating the tool. Right. Uh, Does any of that like resonate with you that like, Hey, it was really his broad scope of understanding the world and his access to all of these other um, scientists. Oh, the book also goes into the detail about how Nobel prize winners, they're different than other scientists. Like the vast majority of them spend half their time doing their science and the other half playing music or painting or they're not like – they're not one-trick ponies. They have like mm-hmm. two or three things that seem disconnected that they're, that they're crazy passionate about. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's, the, what's question? the question? Did you see Warburg as an eclectic man? Like did you see him – did you see any artist side in him? Did you see, um, Uh, like, what made him innovative? What made him different than the other scientists? That he was able to connect things and that he realized that a cancer researcher is not going to become, a specialist in cancer research is not going to be the one to find the cure for cancer. Was there anything else that you saw that validated that you can think of? Yeah. I mean, he was interested in a lot of things. He was very well read. Um, He... He was an equestrian. He rode horses every day. He played music. You know, he, he grew up in this German environment where, uh, you know, they expected excellence. And he went to a school where he had to learn Latin and Greek. So he, he was very cultured. And um, but but as a scientist, you know, he was very, very influenced. You know, he studied biology and biochemistry or, or he his work. It was in you know biology, biochemistry. But um, he was very influenced by 
the physics of his father and Einstein and um, saw himself really as someone who took physics and applied it to biological processes. And um, I think it explains a lot about his work and, and how he, he saw the world. He was, you know, living through a time when Einstein and, and Max Planck and, and the other people that were in his house growing up were sort of reducing everything to universal laws and um, fundamental principles. And he saw, you know, when he's studying photosynthesis or respiration, you know, that these, you know, they work in opposite directions, but it's all, you know, fundamentally linked. You know, he didn't see one time he was talking about photosynthesis and uh, respiration. He said, you know, it's, it's, it's really just the same stuff. And, you know, people were amazed that he was doing discoveries in two different fields, but he didn't see it that way. Um, but, um, you know, it gets into an interesting debate. You know, a lot of people push back against fundamental principles in biology, say, yes, it works for, for physics and, and for fundamental chemistry. But when you start getting into biology, it's too messy. You can't reduce things to, you know, simple principles. And, and there's some truth to that. I'm sympathetic to that argument, but, um, I think that the pushback is sometimes too strong that, uh, the embrace of complexity and understanding cancer, which is an extraordinary complex disease, is important. But at the same time, when you embrace complexity in that way, you, you're overlooking the role of, you know, glucose or, you know, these excess glucose consumption. Like, how is that missed? You know, Warburg himself said that, you know, these endless stream of what he called miscellaneous discoveries um, you know, has a way of blinding us. And, and I think that's true. Um, so finding, you know, finding the right balance is important, but I think, you know, maybe I veered a bit from your initial no, question, no, but I think, um, you know, I think what, what really made him unique as a thinker is always thinking in terms of, of physics. <laughs> he also, you know, just being a narcissistic jerk, like later in his life, when he was being introduced to biochemists, uh, one guy, a mutual friend was introducing him to a biochemist, but uh, he had to introduce the biochemist as a physicist because he thought Warburg wouldn't talk to the guy if he told him he was a biochemist. Is this is a weird question? Is is he your friend? Is Warburg my yeah. friend? I mean, I know he's dead, but I hear you call him a narcissistic jerk with with a smile, the way maybe like my wife might call me a narcissistic jerk. Um, but you spent you've spent so much time with him. Yeah. You invested so much him into him. Yeah, I, I wanted him to be my friend. I think he was my friend at the start of the process. Uh, by the end of it, it was tough. You know, I, you know, to me, you know, as a Jew and as somebody who you know grew up and learned about the Holocaust and you know, became like many Jews, you know, a big part of my understanding of history and, and a big part of my identity that, um, you know, Warburg is a very complicated figure in, in that context. You know, he clearly, you know, was repulsed by the Nazis and, you know, I love that he provoked the Nazis again and again. And I don't blame him for staying, you know, as I talk a lot about in the book, he had a lot of good reasons to stay in Nazi Germany and he didn't see what was coming, but many people didn't. But, you know, I just kept looking for one moment where he would speak out publicly and 
you know, just denounce what was happening to the Jewish people. And privately, you know, he said a lot of things and he was outraged. But, you know, it's easy for me to say, you know, if I had been trapped in Nazi Germany, I don't know if I <laughs> would have been brave enough to, to do more. So it's hard to judge from history. But I just never got the sense that he was able to escape his narcissism. Like, I never got the sense that he really felt the horror of what happened, even, you know, after the war, when he would have been able to to understand it. You know, shortly after the war, he just kind of moved on and, like many Germans, just tried to kind of sweep it away. And um, so, you know, I, I just I struggle with it. But, you know, what, in a way, I felt like I had to forgive him for some of his you know, behavior for being so narcissistic and the way that I was able to do that, I, I think is because, you know, a lot of people, the scientists who did seem more honorable and decent, like Hans Kreb and David Nachmanson and some of these other Jewish guys, they continued to, re to really like Warburg after the war and, and to be his friend. So I thought, you know, if they could put up with him, I can too. But uh, I just wish that, um, you know, he had been at least a little bit more of a champion for the Jewish people, but he, you know, it's just not how he was wired. And, you know, he didn't get a Jewish father, but he didn't grow up Jewish. So he didn't see it as part of his identity, you know, for, for many German Jews, and particularly like a half Jew like Warburg, the real shock was like the, they're persecuting us. We're not even Jewish. You know, he didn't see it that way. So, you know, I wanted things from him that maybe I couldn't rightfully expect of him. But, um, you know, there were, there were other scientists like Fritz Haber, who, you know, they told him to fire all his Jewish employees. And he's like, all right, I'm out of here. And he leaves, you know, Warburg was just kind of willing to kind of look the other way as long as they didn't interfere with him too much. So that, that was my struggle. But, um, the narcissism doesn't bother me that much because, you know, I, I kind of find it amusing <laughs> and, and as, as, as you, as you said that, um, you know, it's part of his greatness. There's no, there's no escaping that. Has anyone talked to you about making this into a movie? Uh, no, I, you know, I hope, I hope that will happen, but, uh, you know, waiting by the phone, no, no I, one's called I yet. mean, it, it's a great movie. It's, it's a, Thanks. yeah, it's, it's an amazing movie. I mean, if it was made 20 years ago, I could see Ben Kingsley playing him or, I mean, it's, it, I mean, it needs someone who can do the whole, the whole thing, but man, it should definitely be a movie. Yeah, that'd be nice. I wonder if you see this parallel, and maybe you're going to be like, of course I see it, or I don't know how you're going to react to this one. Um, I see it in, I see it as whatever the year was, 1923, that this guy, I'm going to really simplify this, this guy sees that sugar is the cause of all cancer, at least as I read it. That's just my interpretation, and I'm okay if I'm wrong, but I'm still going to stick with it. He sees sugar as the cause of all the maladies going on. I know your book talks about the other things that they were concerned about, like chemicals and tar and all the things popping up on the mm. scene. And here we are in 2021. And, and, and I'll, I'll go back a little bit. So when I first started working for CrossFit, you know, 15 years ago, Greg was always saying, Hey, we are just about to go into a tsunami of chronic disease and it's all caused by sugar. And even 15 years ago, he said, he would say dementia, is and uh, Alzheimer's is type three diabetes. He basically had everything pinned on added sugar, refined carbohydrates and added sugar. He would tell us nonstop mm -hmm. that CrossFit preached that from the mountaintops. And mm -hmm. if people would have listened to him, no one would even know that we, we, we would have never had this, what I call the so-called pandemic. 
If we had a society that wasn't obese, we would have no idea that this was even here. This would just be nothing, it would, in my opinion. This would be just something that came and went. It wouldn't have... It, and, and when I read your book, I'm like, it's, it's identical. It's identical to what happened um, in, in, um, in, in the world in the 20s, that basically people were eating like shit, a sickness started growing, and, and I think today 600,000 people a year die of cancer in the, just in the United States. Does, does that number sound right? Yeah, yeah, around 600,000. And, and I don't want to say every single one of them is caused by cancer, but, th- but there were some, some fascinating, I think it was in your book, some fascinating statistics on mice in like chapter 14 or 15, where basically, you know, I don't know if I have the numbers right, but you feed 50 mice regular food and then 50 mice um, regular food plus as much sugar as they want, and, and the discrepancies in who gets cancer and who doesn't is like, I'm sold. Yeah. Yeah, Do you see yeah, the, the parallel said. of your book, and I, and I don't. I, I guess I'm avoiding the politics of it because I don't know your politics. But do you see the parallel between what was happening in Nazi Germany and cancer and diet and the lack of recognition of what seems so obvious to what's happening right now? That like everyone's looking for a solution over here when the solution is right here. Um. When you when you say what's happening right now, are you talking about? Like pandemic-related stuff? Uh, or yes, all the – all the, so people are trying to put masks on. People are trying to do lockdowns and quarantines. People are trying to look for a medical intervention like vaccines. One, hey, if, if you – if you like you can go to the CDC website and see that 95% of the people who have died are 78 years or older with four plus – four more comorbidities and the other 5% there's no data on. So I'm just going to say 100%, right? And – um. These, and then you start looking at what the comorbidities are, and they're all dietary related. 99% of them are um, you know, something that occurred because you ate too many calories, probably too much refined carbohydrate yeah. sugar. And so, but, but no one's addressing that. When I say no one, it, it just doesn't get any um, – I've never um, – like when Trump got COVID, I didn't see him say, okay, I'm going to go on a diet and lose 60 pounds or – um, you know, we're spending trillions of dollars yeah. on a vaccine and I don't yeah. hear Biden saying free steak and broccoli for everybody. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I yeah. feel like this. Boris Johnson. Uh, I was going to say Boris Johnson actually did do that. Did, okay, know, good he on actually him. said, good on him. yeah, <laughs> I, I'm just struggling. And, and I'm struggling with the fact that this is like, as I'm reading your book and, and then, and then the laws that were in place and sort of the segregation that was sprouting up in Germany and just, I, I just see like politically, scientifically, financially, I just see this as I read your book, I'm like, holy shit, this is the whole thing happening all over again. Um yeah, I mean it on class, I mean it on but everything except for what it really is. Hey, just change what you shove in your mouth. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, there's you know, there's two pieces to what you're saying. You know, I certainly agree with the part that um that metabolism, you know, that being metabolically unhealthy is, you know, a huge risk factor for COVID and it's an obvious one and it's outrageous that we're not talking about it more. Uh, the second part of what you're saying, if I understood correctly, you know, is making analogies between now and what's going on in Germany in the 30s. That I don't think I'm on board with, you know, it, it just makes me uncomfortable to make any analogies to, to Nazi Germany. Sure. But um, sure. Me too. Um, yeah, so... So I wouldn't say that I'm on board with that, but the metabolism part of it, you know, it does just, you know, 
really from the beginning, I started following the research on, you know, who was actually having the worst outcomes from, you know, COVID. It was, it was very obvious that it was people who were metabolically un unhealthy. And, you know, even now it's almost never talked about. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a huge part, part of the story that, that needs to be discussed more. And people, and people fixated on the correlates. The correlates like being age or skin color or race. Like these are, yeah. these are, these are, um, I feel like these are, these are just distractions from like, Hey, every, or save your, save the, the rhetoric or the correlates for after this is all done. But, but yeah. like if, if you're 70, if you're saying old people are dying, at a higher rate, then you also have to acknowledge the fact that they've also been practicing, and they don't do this, they've also been practicing poor lifestyle choices for a longer time. Yeah. Just, and you, you, go ahead. Yeah, you see this in the cancer world all the time, too. There's all this discussion of disparities in cancer outcomes in different minority groups, and it's a hugely important topic, but then you you know look at the conversation, and, and they're often not talking about metabolic health, which is you know, the obvious sort of signal here is that, you know, often people who are less privileged and have a poor diet, have poor metabolic health, and that could explain away so much of the disparities, whereas, you know, people are talking about all these different aspects of, of urban life when the biggest factor, the metabolism is, is right there. Uh, I, I imagine it is like you and I are standing on a, um, on a railroad track, and there's a train coming, and I'm Armenian, by the way. And the and the and the driver is the the driver of the train is yelling racial slurs at me for being Armenian, and I turn to you and I say I can't believe this driver is yelling racial slurs and I start getting really fixated on that. Meanwhile, you step off the track and you're saying to me, "Hey, Sevon, why don't you step off the track? We'll let him pass, and then, and then we'll talk about it." And I feel like I'm so fixated on the guy yelling the conductor that I just get run over by the train. And it, it's a, um, it's just hard. It's hard. It's hard to watch. It, it's it's hard yeah. to watch. And and I was fortunate enough to uh, be be around CrossFit where, you know, I knew the tsunami was coming. It took me 15. By the way, I don't eat added sugar or refined carbohydrates. I finally made the leap uh, about a year and a half ago. Have you ever heard of a diet called the carnivore diet? Yeah. yeah. So I basically used that diet for a month to put myself into ketosis. Mm. And as soon as I went into ketosis, my sugar cravings went away and I started craving fat. And, and then I never had, and then I started reintroducing vegetables again and I made the leap. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm pretty, you know, maybe not as strict as you, but I'm pretty low carb myself and certainly rarely have added sugars unless my kids are literally shoving them into my mouth because they're so annoyed with me. You look lean and mean, Sam Apple. Um, Sam, where were you born? Houston, Texas. And how old are you? Uh, 45. Boy, you look young. Um, and, and your dad was a writer. Yeah, still is. Still is. Sorry, still is. Uh, yeah. Yeah, great writer. I, uh, I don't like to tout my own books, but I, I will happily tout his. He's uh, a great American writer. So you... Max Apple. And so you were, you're born in Houston, Texas, and where is home now? Uh, Philadelphia suburbs. And, um, and where, what do you do? What's your day job? Uh, I teach science writing at Johns Hopkins, well, science writing and sort of general fiction and nonfiction writing. I'm 
teach both, but uh, mostly involved in, in the science writing program at Johns Hopkins. It's a, a master's program. Highly recommend it to uh, anybody out there who's interested in becoming a science writer. And, and how long have you been doing that? Uh, I've been doing that for about a year. Prior to that, uh, I was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, I still do freelance writing. And, you know, the book, of course, was, was a big part of my work uh, over the past five years. I want to tell you, so I didn't read this book. I listened to the audio book. <laughs> but, but I bought it so that I could, I almost forgot to show it, so that I could show it off on the podcast. And my mom came over to the house the other day, and I won't shut up talking about it. So she's like, hey, can I borrow that? I'm like, of course, as soon as I use it as a prop on the podcast. <laughs> and, 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 and to be honest, I th like I said, I think I, I was on chapter 16. And how many chapters are in the book? Um, I think uh, 22. Okay, damn. I was hoping you were going to say like 18. I could say I was closer to the end. <laughs> Sorry. It's funny, you haven't even gotten to all the me metabolism sugar stuff. That all comes at the end. Um, last night I went and read the reviews on Amazon. And, and when I say the reviews, I always just read the bad ones. And it has mostly five-star <laughs> reviews. And it's so funny because I went to the two-star review. There's one two-star review. And it's like, you know like when people give something a one-star review because it showed up broken? And you're like, yo, that, that's, like, that's not reviewing the product. <laughs> Yeah, and, I, and, yeah. and the only bad review about the book is so clearly that the guy who was um, do you read the reviews yeah I, I shouldn't but I usually do the review on Amazon is the guy it's because there was something in the book that he wanted that wasn't in there and I, and I, I just find that like like that's not a bad review. If you were looking for a recipe on how to break bake vegan bread and Sam didn't put it in the book, that's not his fault. That doesn't make it a bad book. That means that you were looking in the wrong yeah. fucking book. Yeah, it, it it's very frustrating and just you know it's human nature that you you focus on the bad ones more than the good ones. But um, you know it's just it's part of the bargain if you're gonna write a book and put it out there and you know, ask people to read it. You know, I just accept that that's part of the process. You have to deal with it. I realize I'm making a presupposition here. When did you realize it was a good book? Um, I feel arrogant and even, even responding to that, but, um, Tap into your inner Otto Warburg. Yeah. 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 I think for me, it may have been that, um, you know, I, I weave, kind of what you might call a, a mini biography of Hitler throughout the book. I wouldn't call it a biography, but, you know, just little snippets about Hitler. And I think for me that that was a turning point, you know, that I saw that I had a way to tell Warburg's story and also to tell a little bit of Hitler's story and then to show how they collide. Um, it just felt like a more complicated Project. I didn't know if I could pull it off, but this, you know, what I call a braided narrative where you have one story and then another story and weaving them together, you know. So to me, it was like realizing that I could do that. And then, you know, it took a tremendous amount of trial and error. But once I felt that, um, that the stories came together and that the structure of the book was, you know, fundamentally sad, then I started to feel good about it. So even before it came out, before other people started reading it, you gave yourself some internal validation? Yeah, I think I did. Um, you know, you have to be a little bit of a narcissist to to be an author, I think, and you have to 
you know, trust, trust your instincts, but, you know, certainly was always accompanied by a lot of doubt, you know, like horrible periods of intense doubt that, uh, you know, never fully goes away. But, you know, after I finally started to get, you know, some responses to, to people I showed it to at the end of the process and, and they really liked it, then, you know, then I started to feel more confident. It's always tricky because you know that you know, your friends aren't going to tell you it's a terrible book and you look for like the little signs of whether or not they really mean it. But I've had enough people say it that I feel good about it. It is, how many pages is this book? Well, you said it was 22 chapters. Is there a longer version? Is there a version that's 40 chapters and your wife read it and is like, yo, Sam, you have to cut the um, chapters? No, but there was a lot of stuff in the, in the early drafts that, um, you know, it didn't belong in the book and, uh, that I cut out. And then I thought I had cut almost all that stuff out, but then I, you know, gave it to my editor who, uh, was really great. And, and he cut, you know, a bunch of other sections at the, I think a big challenge for me is, you know, I've been doing a lot of magazine writing. And so initially I, I thought I had to start every chapter with like a really engaging story of some kind that would draw the reader in. And I did still try to do that, but I, I sort of forgot about the fact that this is not a magazine article, it's a book, and that each chapter has to flow naturally into the one before. So I had to go back over the whole thing, and, you know, I had spent months, if not, you know, over a year, probably working on these elaborate introductions, and I ended up cutting most of them because they broke the narrative thread. Like, you know, I had, like, three pages about the assassination of the, you know, Archduke of Austria, and I got it down to, like, three sentences. Yeah, that's painful. Um I made a lot of documentary films, and, and you and you, it's, it's a two-hour and fifteen-minute masterpiece, and then you see people yawning until you cut yeah. out forty-five minutes of it, and it, it's it's um. A, another analogy might be in the garden: you plant three fruit trees really close to each other, and they're your three three favorite trees. But six years later, the one in the middle has to go, or else it's going to kill all of them. Yeah, and it's just like, oh shit, how am I going to do that? Yeah, yeah, it's a very painful process. We. You know, in my writing workshops, we call it killing your babies, and it's never it's never easy to do, but uh, it's usually usually necessary. Um, what? And even even the stuff that I keep, you know, I end up going over and over and over again. You know, so much of the writing is just rewriting. Why did you become a writer? Was it because your dad was a writer? I think that um, I don't think it was because of that, but that you know made me realize that it was a possibility, you know, to a lot of people, it might seem like, you know, an, an unlikely career choice, but I always knew, you know, seeing my father do it, that, you know, it, it was an option, but I didn't set out to do it. If anything, you know, he was, you know, an acclaimed writer. Um, and, you know, it was a little intimidating to, to go into the field. You know, you know, actually Warburg, I think went into biology and biochemistry because, you know, his father was an acclaimed physicist and that was, his way of distinguishing himself. So I like to joke that my, uh, my great rebellion was going into nonfiction because my dad was a fiction writer primarily. Um, but, but really it was because I, you know, I got to, to college and um, I started getting good feedback uh, on the papers that I wrote and I took a creative writing class and got good feedback and, you know, feedback felt good. And I, you know, I wasn't especially great at anything else. So, you know, I went with it. What, what did he, what was his response when he read the book? My dad's? 
uh, he loved it. And uh, I was, you know, that to me mattered more than anything. You know, it's once, you know, you asked me before, like, when did I know it was good? Or I would say, you know, when, when, when I was glad that I did it or when I was fully satisfied with it was when, you know, my dad read it and responded because, you know, he, he tells me the truth. You know, I showed it to him at an early stage, so I still had time to revise it. And he, um, you know, he didn't suggest many changes. He, he thought it was really working. So that was enormously gratifying to me. You know, we are incredibly close. He lives a few blocks from here. And, um, you know, he, um, my, my mother died when uh, I was relatively young. So I was really raised by my father and we had a very close relationship. So it was very meaningful to me that he read it and liked it. Do you have siblings? Uh, I do. I, I have uh, three sisters, an older sister, and then uh, two younger half-sisters. And your dad, wow, your dad basically raised all you guys. Yeah, well, he um, he raised my sister and me, my older sister and me, and then um, he later remarried and uh, raised uh, two additional children with my stepmother. Is your sister a writer also? Uh, she is, yeah, my older sister, uh Jessica Apple uh, is actually a great writer and uh, runs a, uh, a diabetes magazine called A Sweet Life, which uh, everybody should check out. It's really good and um, fascinating stuff about low carb nutrition. And she, you know, she she knows more about a lot of this stuff than I do. So, um, you know, a sweet life. Check it out. So your so your two worlds kind of collided with this book. Yeah. It, yeah, it's very interesting because we didn't, it wasn't coordinated. We didn't like, you know, get into it at the same time. We just both became interested in, you know, clearly, you know, something in our disposition, you know, lends itself, I guess, to me about it. I just followed my interests and uh, we ended up in the same place. Yeah. What a cool thing. She must be so excited. It's like, it's like you finally stepped into her world, her brain. All, all yeah. the, now, whenever yeah. you guys hang out and have dinner, you talk. Now you have like a ton to talk about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all we all we do is is talk about metabolism. You know, it's, it's annoying for everybody else in the family. <laughs> um, I noticed yeah. on your Twitter that you've become a little bit, uh, somewhat of a. Uh, I only looked at, I don't know, looking back a couple months, but you've some you've come become somewhat of an activist. I was wondering if you were like that before. My the the specific things would be like the things around chocolate milk. What, what kids are being fed. Some of those tweets, I was like, wow, he's, he's really going out there. I mean, that shit is dangerous to say now. Yeah, yeah, I feel... Dangerous isn't the right yeah, word. It can get you punished. Get your hand slapped. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of tricky because, um, you know, as a, as a journalist, you know, sometimes I do stories where I really have to be entirely unbiased. And, you know, I don't like to show show my hand too much or show my, you know, opinions. But um, I've kind of decided that, um, you know, when it comes to metabolism stuff, you know, that it's pretty clear already where I stand. And, um, you know, the, the sugar stuff is just so outrageous. You know, we now have 55 U.S. representatives calling for more sugary milk in schools. I mean, it's just disgusting. And I feel like, you know, if it makes me an activist to speak out against that, then I guess I'm an activist. But um, or maybe just a good dad. I don't, maybe you're just a good father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think about it like I wouldn't want my kids to do it. So why should these kids who rely on these government lunches have to do it? You know, it's really so upsetting. So, you know, I, I try to 
present myself in, in most contexts as a journalist who's just telling stories, but I guess I am slowly stepping into the, the activist role a little bit. How many kids do you have? I have three kids. Oh, holy cow. And how old are your kids? Yeah. Uh, they are 15, 12, and 12. Oh, you have twins. Yeah. So I have a six-year-old and two four-year-olds. Oh, wow. So, yeah, very, very similar. Uh, wow, that's crazy. It, yeah, it gets easier. <laughs> how, how many books have you written? Uh, I've written uh, three books for adults. And how many books for kids? Uh, two, but um, I'm not talking about those as much. You don't want to talk about them or you're not talking about yeah, them? Yeah, I prefer not to. Okay. I, I did. I, <laughs> I, sh I shouldn't have brought it up. I don't know why, but I said for adults, it's my fault. <laughs> um, I did. I did. I, I'll finish on this and then I'll leave you alone. I did buy the book and I think it arrives today on Amazon, The Saddest Toilet in the World. Oh, man. You went there. You went there. All it's right. It's the greatest. Uh, trying to avoid what an it. amazing uh, title for a book. I can't wait. That's like, that, that is, I can't wait. Okay. I'll leave you alone. I'll leave you alone. Yeah, I, I will say now that now that you went okay. there that that it's actually well. All right, I'll just I'll just let it go. But you know, I just don't want that to distract from the seriousness of my my other messages. But it is fun to do. Um, no, I don't think it does at all. And I, um, you know, I watched all of your interviews, and I have to tell you that as much as I'm interested in the book, I'm more interested in you as a person. It's just how all my interviews go. People think I'm, I'm just like. What the heck makes Sam Apple tick? Yeah. Like, well, you're you're good you're good at drawing it out because I, I've said more in this interview than I I plan to or that I usually do. There, and I watched the CBS interview and I was very very frustrated with with um, they, they never even mentioned the word sugar. I don't think in the interview. I think they they said something about Otto was focused on the consumption of nutrients that the cancer cells consume or some shit shit like yeah. that. And I wanted to. I'm writing the assault by well, working out, watching this with my headphones on, and I think, yeah. I, think I got a better workout because it got me angry. <laughs> yeah, well, I, did, I think they cut that part when I was talking about it, but later when it gets to Lewis Cantley, the cancer researcher, I think they got the sugar they in did? that okay. part of it. I think, I think so. When you meet, have you met Thomas Seafried and Gary Taubes and all these guys? And and yeah, Ta Taubes I know quite well. Seafried I just interviewed once. Okay, and did you look at his book? Um, cancer is a metabolic disease. Yes. Like, so do, you, do yes. you pick that up? Open. I mean, it's like a, it's like a paperweight. It's huge. Do you open that up and yeah. try to actually read that? Um, yes, but you know, it's it's a struggle for me as well. You know, certainly when I was first getting into this topic, it was a big struggle for me. But uh, you know, over the years, as I learned more and more of the science and the the jargon, it became easier. But um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a journalist, not a scientist, and I, I still you know, spend a lot of time struggling with scientific papers like, like the rest of us. How long did it take you to write this book, Ravenous? Five years. Wow. And how, yeah. and how many times do you think that it, it, it died in those five years? That it didn't make it to the finish line? That it didn't make it to this? Um, do you mean like how many times did I have moments of profound doubt that I wouldn't be able to finish? Is that yeah? Like, did you ever set it down for a month and then we're like, oh my goodness, how am I going to start this up again? Yeah, yeah. There were, I would say there were, 
you know, three or four times, you know, there's always a little bit of doubt, but there were, you know, the few three or four, maybe, you know, minor panic attacks you might call it, or like, you know, fuck, I don't understand this or it's not coming together. Sorry, am I allowed to curse? All you want, all you <laughs> want. It only makes me look right. better because that's like my biggest criticism from people who listen. Hey, dude, easy on the F-bombs. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> so I like um, it when you do it. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, so there were, there were those moments where I thought, you know, or, or I feel like I, I had a full handle on the science and then a new paper would come out, which would, you know, put the science into a different perspective and... Um, you know, so there were panic attacks to where I felt like it died. You know, interestingly, one of the moments where I really started to get panicked was, you know, I had written this whole end of the book. I guess you haven't gotten to that part yet, but, you know, where I talk about sugar, sugar causing cancer by way of its effect on insulin and, and elevated insulin actually being, you know, the key, key factor. But then as I was writing the book, some new research came out or came to my attention about, um, sugar actually causing some cancers directly without the influence of insulin. So even though in a way it supported my case against sugar, it was like a, a different mechanism, which I, I had to sort of wrestle with and, you know, raise some questions about, you know, my, my whole hypothesis. But uh, I think that, um, you know, after doing more interviews and more research, I think it all holds together, but it, it just showed that, um, you know, the science is always evolving. And, you know, at some point I just had to accept that no matter what I write, there's going to be a new paper next month, which is going to raise questions about it. So it's kind of a snapshot of where the, where the science is now is, is how I, I try to think about it. I'm, I'm not a journalist. I'm, I'm more of just like a big mouth. But when, when people, I, one of my fallbacks arguments is like, hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe uh, you can eat sugar and you can eat refined carbohydrates. But what I'm saying won't hurt you. So, so like, I, I know as a journalist, you want to have that integrity and get everything, you know, spot on. But the truth is, is that like you said, like anything you're saying in there, it's not going to hurt anyone. You're not telling people, Hey, running across the freeway as a pastime is a great pastime. It's yeah. And that's, I mean, I, I agree with that. And that's also partially why in the end I focused on prevention rather than, you know, some people talk to me about or, or read the book expecting it to be like, talking about how you can use the ketogenic diet to treat cancer. You know, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff coming out around that. And, um, you know, I'm optimistic, but uh, I didn't want to go too too far in that direction because the science is just too early and you could get harmed if, you know, if it's the wrong kind of cancer, you do it incorrectly. So I really focused on prevention for that reason. Awesome. How, how do you manage um, a wife and three kids? Were you working at, on more than one book simultaneously? Did you publish any other books or were you working on any other books when you were writing um, this? Just the children's books, but nothing else. Okay, so simultaneously. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I also worked on you know magazine features and stuff, but no other like serious books. And... So you're working on a bunch of different projects and then, you, and then you're also a professor... And you're also a husband, and then you're also a son, and then you also have three kids. How? How? I, I don't get how. Yeah. How that works. Well, yeah, it's funny that you say that because I always have that how question when I see all, all these doctors writing books. Like, how? How the hell are they doing that? You know, they're working full time, and uh, I, I was uh, when I wrote Ravenous, I was only teaching part time at Penn. Now I'm teaching full time at Johns Hopkins. So. 
that, that made a big difference. Um, but, um, you know, beyond that, it's, um, you know, just <laughs> drinking tremendous amounts of coffee and really having a deadline, you know, it's such some writers just, you know, sit down and write their books and then turn it over to the publisher. I had a deadline and I had to get it done. So, um, you know, that, that helped a lot without that. I don't know that I would have finished and it did, you know, did take me five years. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was burning through. Was, did you have any mourning when it was done or was it all adulation and, and like, was it like giving birth to a baby or like, thank God, or were you like, I actually enjoyed being pregnant? Um, I mean, the writing is laborious and difficult, but there were times when it was also really exciting, particularly, you know, sort of becoming something like a historian for the first time and the excitement of digging through archives and making discoveries. So I, I missed some of that. Um, but um, I didn't, I wouldn't say that I mourned it. You know, I, I think when I sort of dabble in fiction and I get more of that feeling when I finish a fictional story where I sort of kind of become obsessed with an imaginary world or a character and then I finish and I, I kind of miss it a little bit. But with nonfiction, you know, there's so much research and fact checking and stuff that I didn't sort of have that type of emotional connection to the writing process in the same way that I do with fiction. But, um, you know, I, I do miss the, the excitement of digging through these archival letters and finding exciting things. When I, I saw Tim Noakes congratulated you. Yeah, yeah, he's been really supportive. I'm very grateful for that. Did you know him during the entire time you were writing the book? No, I still, I still don't know him at all. He's just like this very generous stranger on Twitter. I, I mean, I know he's a, he's a famous scientist and, and a very influential figure. But I'm just very grateful that he keeps tweeting about it. Yeah, if if uh, Tim Noakes tweeted something to me like, "Hey, Seb, on great podcast," I would, I would like, I'd ride that high for a month. Yeah, that, yeah, that was awesome. To see. Yeah, yeah, he, he's uh, he's been really generous. I'm really grateful. There's an interview you do. It's on YouTube. You're reading from one of your books. It's kind of funny because it's one of my other favorite subjects too, and it's about circumcision. Wow, you're you're, you're covering everything. Wow. <laughs> uh, what book is that from? Uh, it's from my uh, second book, American Parent, which is. Um, it's about the first year of my son's life. And what I decided to do for that book is to uh, sort of do a journalistic account of, of raising my son during the first year. And then along the way, interview all sorts of parenting experts and look into the history of parenting practices and to try to kind of weave the two together, weave my experience in with the history of science. So, you know, you were asking me about the structure a little bit of, of ravenous. And I think that was kind of a warm up for this, you know, finding ways to kind of blend two different types of narrative together. And um, it was also my first time really starting to write about science a little bit because I started looking into why we believe certain things about, you know, how, how children turn out and how they're raised. So I, um, you know, the book wasn't widely read and I'm still kind of bitter about that, but I do think that, uh, you know, really prepared me to write Ravenous in a lot of ways. Is that, is that, um, I'm going to show you how dumb I am right now. Um, is that book an, available in audiobook? American? Uh, no, sadly, no. Uh, 
Damn. Yeah, I hope so. That one day. <laughs> uh, How am I yeah. going to read it? I have friends whenever I tell them I'm reading this book, they're like, shut up. You don't read. I'm like, okay, so I'm listening to this book. Yeah. Nah. Um, what did you know? Um, so, so that's um, when you read that, that's a true story. That story you're telling in that, in that reading of your book is a true story. You actually went out and searched for your moil and found him <laughs> yeah. and stayed the night at his house. Yeah, yeah, it's a true story. It's actually, it's kind of fascinating because, you know, I mentioned before my father is a fiction writer and, you know, he, he's a humorist, a satirist, and um, one of his more famous short stories is about a guy who um, is stuck in, uh, he's doing a type of therapy which was popular in the in the 70s and maybe 80s where, you try to go back to your birth. It's like a form of psychoanalysis where you go farther and farther and back to your birth. And the character can't get all the way back to his birth because he's stuck on the eighth day. That's the name of the short story, the eighth day, his circumcision. And um, I swear the people... Understandably yeah. so. Understandably yeah. So, um, so my father's written this story. And then I, you know, I hadn't thought about that because, you know, when he wrote that when I was a little kid and I hadn't really read his, a lot of his fiction as an adult. And then I had this idea, well, if I'm writing about all these different practices related to, to childbirth and, you know, why not write about circumcision as well? Because I was having a son and we're Jewish and, you know, I wanted to investigate the history. So I thought, you know, I'm interviewing all these experts. Why not interview my own Moyle? Uh, Cause I knew he, he was still alive. But then I realized you know, I was acting out my dad's short story and my dad's story. The guy goes and talks to his mom. I hadn't even thought about it until after the fact. I, I'm sure, uh, you know, it influenced me, but it was really, you know, life imitating art. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I went and hung out with my mom. He's a great guy. He's, he's over 90 now, but still not, not circumcising, but still going strong. Was it, was it, did you see any absurdity in the fact that you were asking him if he met, if he remembered? I mean, there's some in that, it's a, it's a, the piece you read, it's like seven minutes long, and I was just dying <laughs> laughing because of just the absurdity. You're asking him if he remembers you, and then to try to refresh his memory, you showed him a baby picture of yourself. And to me, just all babies look the same. Yeah. Was that well, – I mean, did you really think – and I wasn't, couldn't even tell if it was a true story. So that is hey, a true uh, story. Did you think anything about what you were doing was absurd? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean uh, I uh, – Or did you do it because it was absurd? Well, I mean – both, you know, I, I was writing a you know mostly serious book about child rearing, and you know I'm interested in, in circumcision in terms of you know it's a very strange practice, you know, like how this became such a central part of, of Jewish religion and history, and so it wasn't the absurdity wasn't driving me to do it, but I appreciate the absurdity in, in the book. I hope it, you know it's meant to be funny, um, so you know. I, uh, I, I recognize the absurdity, but, you know, it, that wasn't the, the goal in itself. But, you know, if I can weave in some absurdity along the way. Um, you know, I also write in my spare time. You ask me, like, other things I do. I write little humor pieces, like, for McSweeney's or, you know, I did one for the New Yorker, Shouts and Murmurs. I, I enjoy these little kind of humor pieces. Have you seen the movie? I think it's called American Circumcision. Uh, no, I haven't seen that. It's on. It's on iTunes. You you should check it out. I think it's on iTunes. Maybe it's on Netflix. I can't remember. But I saw it. I I promise you, a lot of people will not want to watch yeah. it. You know, it's it's a it's a big dose of just reality. Yeah. In the in 
in your yeah, I'm not sure I want to watch. But it's fascinating. It's fascinating. It is really, really fascinating. Um, my favorite part is also when you ask them when you talk about where do um, where do foreskins uh, go? Like you're looking for the graveyard for foreskins, <laughs> and he basically said he just throws it on the ground and stomps yeah. it on the ground with his cowboy. Yeah, that's kind of depressing. Got to be some. There's got to be something illegal, medical, <laughs> medical, toxic waste. Yeah, yeah. I love too that they they call you know he had done a lot of. Uh, East Coast transplant, so they called him the Yankee Clipper. That was his nickname in Houston, where he was circumcising. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm so surprised that this interview ended up here. I didn't see that coming. Oh, it's a, it's it's a, I, I my some of my favorite topics are circumcision and and, and overconsumption of sugar. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Um, there was a story I wanted to share with you that I thought you would find fascinating. It's kind of it go, I wish I would have said it when we talked about um, about people who are who are experts won't find the cure for the right cancer. It's going to have to be someone who has a, 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 can see the bigger picture. And it was a story that um, Greg's told me before. But basically, the, the Tabasco company, the company that makes Tabasco sauce, mm-hmm. they put out a contest for um, they wanted they wanted to sell more Tabasco sauce. So they were looking for a slogan or something, and they basically put out a contest with all of their employees saying, "Hey, enter this contest and tell us how we can sell more Tabasco sauce. What can we do?" And so all these people turned in all these submissions of different ads and campaigns and catchy slogans and tunes. And then the winner would get a million dollars. Well, the winner, and I think you're old enough to remember this. I'm 49, and I remember the winner. His solution to selling more Tabasco sauce was to make the hole in the top of the bottle bigger, <laughs> and it had nothing to do with marketing. Yeah. And because do you remember as a kid you'd shake yeah, it out yeah. and you couldn't get it out? And then now, if you if you check it out now, you can just turn it upside down. Yeah, and it pours out. And so as I was, I, I was remembering that story as I was reading your book, and that was one of the things I was like, oh, my goodness, yes. This is like someone just thinking just totally out of the box. Yeah. And, uh, and they got the solution. So I, I, I kind of tied that to, um, to Otto Warburg. What is, uh, what's next for you? Um, I'm not sure. I, um... Yeah. That, um... Do you get to retire from teaching when this thing becomes a movie? Uh, I really love teaching, so I don't think that I will. But um, you know, maybe maybe do a little bit less. Um, but uh, I might, you know, I feel like I need a little bit of a break. Um, you know, this was just a really intense process. Uh, I do have some ideas about you know another sort of project that would combine some of the metabolism stuff with another interesting historical character. Uh, but I, I might take a little break to work on fiction as well. You know, I've had a few novels that I've never had a chance to finish, so I might uh, might sit down with one of those. I'll have to see. Ravenous, it came out on May 25th. I didn't realize how recent it was, by the way. Yeah, yeah, just, just a little more than a month. And the audiobook came out at the same time? Yeah. Um, I can't recommend it enough. Thank you. Um, it, it, you have great reviews from Jason Fung, Gary Taubes, Tim Noakes, um, all rock stars, Emily Kaplan. Um, there's congratulations. Thank you. I mean, and and more importantly, what resonates with me as a little Armenian boy, um, the fact that your dad liked it. There's nothing that makes me more happy than making my mom proud. Yeah. I'm in the exact same. My dad doesn't even know what I do, but, but I mean, he's a great guy, but just doesn't know. Yeah. But, but my mom, 
my mom is my rock. Yeah. So, well, and, and thanks for your time. Yeah, no, thank you. This is, this is a lot of fun. I really appreciate it and appreciate your kind words on the book. Sure. All right. Take care.